Yes. It's amazing the number of men that just raise their hands, isn't it, ladies? This week I was, I think I was on Industriplex, and I, I saw a guy who had run out of gas, and his wife had brought him some fuel, and uh, I thought that was really funny. Uh, I have some convictions that Christians should never find themselves there spiritually. If Christians find themselves in a position where it feels like they've run out of fuel, it's because we have taken our eyes off of Calvary. We have taken our eyes off of Christ. I'm supposed to preach a revival this week, one night, this week, Wednesday night, in Franklinton. And uh, many of you know my convictions. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's always funny that we schedule revivals. How many of you grew up in churches where you had revival every year? Now, certainly we would say perhaps we need it every year, but it would be interesting that we always set it and scheduled it, and then somehow it fizzles. You know, why does it fizzle? Again, it fizzles because we take our eyes off of Calvary. But my convictions are that if every day we would look to Jesus, we would not need to schedule revival. If every day we would just be intentional about meditating upon Christ. D.A. Carson said this, if you seek holiness, you will not find it. If you seek Christ, you'll find holiness. Friends, the spiritual journey is not about a checklist of reading our Bible or memorizing Scripture or even going on mission trips to Haiti. It's not about the checklist. It's about every day my soul pants for you. About every day I long for you. And it's the realization if we pursue Christ and we seek Christ, then he will provide all of the other stuff. Friends, holiness will be added to you You don't make yourself holy. Godliness will be added to you. And this is a a passage I preached uh, in 2 Peter for our our TNT crew at the BCM. Uh, It's just the fact that most people start sermons on holiness with what you should do. Peter starts it with what God has done in Christ. Therefore, make every effort. But only as we grasp what has been achieved for us in the cross. And the reason that I would say this is men in the room Model what it means to pursue Jesus every day. Be intentional about seeking Christ. You want to be a good husband? Seek Christ and watch what the Spirit does to produce being a good husband in you. You want to be a good mother? Seek Christ and watch what the Spirit does to produce holiness as a mother in you. Seek Christ. Meditate on Christ. And so that's why as we're studying, we're going to pick up in Matthew 26 and we're going to study into Matthew 27. And I don't mind the fact that we encountered these verses last year. I don't even mind the fact that some of the sermon points are very similar to one that I gave you a year ago, not completely. And the sermon will be different, but the points are the same. I don't mind repeating because this is the fuel for worship of Jesus. We don't want to go past the cross. We want to go deeper into it. And so today we come to the study of trials. And I don't know about um, about you, but as we study legal course uh, cases, they don't often light my fire, you know? I mean, unless it's the people's court or Judge Judy or Judge Brown, you know? I mean, none of those just really excite passion for me for, uh, for the Lord. And yet we're going to study a trial. I, I saw today on... Some of my preparation in the mornings for Sunday is to watch the ESPN Sports Reporters. And uh, this morning there was a comment that the government has spent three times as much on Barry Bonds' trial as they did on the 9-11 Commission. Uh, It rocked my mind, but I was thinking about it. And the reason it 
it stuck out is because we're going to see Jesus encounter multiple trials in this passage, and not a single one of them will be just. Jesus is going to be mistreated and robbed by the system. There was a conviction they already had in mind before they went through any of the other procedures. But the most incredible thing is Jesus is walking through this intentionally, friends. And we want to see what we can learn. And what we see in these passages that many would say, oh, it's just trials. Friends, there's such fuel for worship of Jesus. If you would meditate on these, revival won't be needed this week. It will already be birthed in your heart. So I want you to stand with me. We're going to begin reading in verse 57 of Matthew 26. Matthew has left off with the last thing letting us know that all the disciples had left Jesus and fled as he was arrested there in the garden. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He's uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You've now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? If you skip down to verse 1 of chapter 27, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away, and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Father, we thank you for this passage, and thank you for the opportunity to study it this morning. We do pray for your spirit to light this text up, and that it would be fuel for us to worship Jesus with the ultimate result that you would be glorified. Father, would you break hard hearts this morning? Would you warm cold hearts to the glorious gospel? We thank you for this, Jesus. Thank you for what he's doing here. Thank you for what it ultimately accomplished, that Christ indeed is a wonderful Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Very simply this morning, the goal is not to just give you some legal information. The goal is that we would have fuel for worship. And you'll see the points here. We should praise Jesus for his suffering. We should praise Jesus for his silence. We should, most likely, yours says pray Jesus, but it should be praise Jesus for his sovereignty and we should praise Jesus for his substitution. And the point of this is how can we use this passage as worship of God? And we see these here. Let me give you a quick summary of the trials. All right, we'll do it in two phases. Jesus is going to experience a Jewish uh, religious trial. And Jesus is going to experience a Roman secular trial. All right. And each of these are going to have three different phases. How many does that make total? All right, good, math whizzes. So he's got six. It's going to begin with Annas, who was the former high priest. He's going to be taken to him initially. And then Matthew's not going to record that. But where Matthew picks up is Annas actually sends him to Caiaphas, his son-in-law. Annas and Caiaphas 
are related, and Caiaphas is the current high priest, and then they're going to have another meeting right there at daybreak, and once they come to their conclusions, they're going to send Jesus to Pilate. Pilate, who's probably not happy that he got woken up at daybreak, and especially with this guy, comes out on his balcony. They can't go into him because it's the Passover. They don't want to tank themselves. So he comes out to them on the balcony, and he says, what's this guy done? And when he finds out that Jesus is a Galilean, he sends them then to Herod. You'll remember Herod the Great, his three sons. Actually, he is divided into kingdoms, three different areas ruling. The one that is over Galilee is where Jesus is sent to Herod the Tetrarch. So he is sent to him, and Herod is not going to find any answers, though he was curious about it. He wanted to see what was going on. Jesus isn't going to say anything to Herod. Most likely because this Herod is the one who put to death John the Baptist. Jesus remembers these things. That's not the main reason. Jesus is being silent for also others. But Herod doesn't get anywhere with Jesus. He sends him back to Pilate. Pilate is going to allow the crowd to choose Barabbas or Jesus. And ultimately he's going to sentence Jesus to death. So in about 12 hours, Jesus is going to experience six trials And I would submit that's too much for anybody, wouldn't you say? I'm looking at our attorneys in the room. In about 12 hours, he's going to face six different legal proceedings. And before the end of the day, he will be dead. Now, I want you to have some fuel for worship. And here's how it begins. We should praise Jesus for his suffering. In this passage, he's going to suffer multiple things, but the very first thing he's going to suffer is injustice. And on your outline, I've given you some things of how it was supposed to be. First of all, capital trials were to be conducted and concluded during daylight. Well, we'll see that Jesus is taken in the garden. Do you remember what time he was taken in the garden? Sometime after midnight. Sometime after midnight. We know that because the cock would begin to crow about 3 o'clock. That's not going to happen until Jesus is already arrested, all right? So between 3 and 6, the roosters would begin crowing. So it is sometime between midnight and 3, perhaps between 1 and 3 in the morning. How many of you believe that there is daylight between 1 and 3 in the morning? My grandmother currently gets up at 3 and makes breakfast. I don't know. I pray against that in my life one day. I pray to always be able to sleep. But the capital trials are not to be conducted. And we see the very first thing is this trial is starting between 1 and 3, and it will end at daybreak when they take him to Pilate. They're not interested in the rules, friends. They're not interested in that. There are no holy intentions. Second of all, trials were not to occur on the eve of a Sabbath or a festival day. First of all, it's both. It's the eve of the Sabbath. It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's the Passover. So a trial shouldn't even be taking place at this point. They're not worried by the calendar. There are rules that they are totally putting to the side. We know back in verse 17 of Matthew 26, now on the first day of Unleavened Bread, it is a festival day. And then they're going to want to take him down in preparations of the Sabbath when they take his body down from the cross because it's in preparations for the Sabbath. These things that we see, it is obviously both of these, an eve of the Sabbath and it is a festival day. Third, rabbinical law required that the sentence of death could not be carried out until the third day after it was rendered, and that during the intervening day, the members of the court were to fast. So if they were to decide that Jesus is to be put to death, which indeed they do, you see over in verse 66, what is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. 
That's the conclusion they come to. So in that case, what's supposed to happen is they are supposed to take the next day and fast, and then on that third day, actually follow through with the punishment. This gives them time to think, did we make a mistake? Is there an error? Plus, it gives them time to to fast, make sure that they've gone about this in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. Does that happen in this case? No. Jesus is dead that very same day. He is sentenced and he's put to death. And my guess is there wasn't much fasting in between that either. All right? But fourth, the Sanhedrin was permitted to hold a trial involving capital punishment only in the temple and only in public. So let's pick up in 57. Those who had seized Jesus had led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders had gathered. And Peter was following him in the distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. So a capital punishment trial is supposed to occur in the temple, but at least at the, at the very least in public, but primarily in the temple. Where is this trial occurring? It's at Caiaphas's house. That's why Peter's able to be there in the courtyard. This is in uh, Caiaphas's own backyard. He has convened the Sanhedrin here. It's taking place in Caiaphas's residence. Fifth, those who are arraigned must first be charged with a crime. Isn't that nifty? How many of you are grateful you can't be arrested without at least having some suspicion or some calls for the crime? The interesting thing is Jesus is arrested, but there's no crime. He isn't indicted. There is no reign. If you go back, verses 3 and 5, 3 through 5 of Matthew 26, where we first started. The chief priests and elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. You see, they already had a plan. They had an end that they wanted to work toward. They just needed something that could achieve that for them. But they don't have a crime. Look at what happens in verse 59 of our passage today. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony. We're going to come back to that, right? It seems like that would be a problem, that they would be seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. So I want to uh, submit to you is that they don't have a crime. And then as these false witnesses come forward, the problem is there's no one who can validate what these false witnesses are even saying. So this is the incredible, glorious picture of Jesus. Are you ready? Jesus could not have a single uh, conviction. No one could say a word of evidence of his wrongdoing. Let me read this to you. It's one of the strongest apologetics in all of Scripture for his moral and spiritual perfection, no one can come forward and say, Jesus did this wrong. Jesus wronged me in this way. Jesus was wrong of this. No one could step forward in these wee early hours and give any testimony that would go against Jesus for anything that he had done wrong. What an incredible testimony. What an incredible pointing to his perfection and not even on purpose, but they and for us, who are reading all these years later, can see that even these pagans, uh, although they wouldn't call themselves pagans, I will, even though they're doing they are pointing towards Jesus and his sinless perfection. And then I think about myself and wonder how many folks might come forward. How many folks might come forward of my own testimony and remind myself of why I need a Savior. I need a Savior. On this night, though, there's no evidence of wrongdoing. Six, Jewish law opposed false witnesses. The biblical penalty for false witnesses in a capital case was execution. So if you lied 
and this person is put to death, you are supposed to be sentenced to the same way, which is going to be why the, uh, later on when Judas, who took the money from the priest, the priest, it's so funny, right, how hypocrisy works. They gave the money to Judas, but they wouldn't accept it back, nor would they help Judas. Judas was a false witness. He should have experienced the same penalty. They won't even go forward with that. Judas ultimately is going to take his own life which in all of that is his own rejection and dealing of all the things that have transpired. But you have many false witnesses. Do you see that? And they were seeking false testimony. What does that tell you about this court if they're looking for false testimony? It tells you that it's completely unjust, right? Seventh, a defendant was protected against self-incrimination. Jesus is going to remain silent. But when they can come up with nothing else except they have these two guys who at last come forward there in verse 60. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The interesting part is you're supposed to be able to supply a date, a time, the exact details of this. And Matthew is going to record one version. Luke's going to record the other. And the witnesses don't say the same things. And neither one say the exact same thing that Jesus said. So, in essence, even these two witnesses should have been thrown out, but it's the best they've got, so they're moving forward with it. And so what Caiaphas is going to do is he's going to put Jesus under oath. This is what happens. They accuse him. In verse 62, the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. What Caiaphas does at this point is he puts Jesus on oath so that if Jesus denies it, Jesus will be guilty of lying. And so this, Jesus is forced to say, Look, uh, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man see at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds. So these that were on trial were supposed to be protected from self-incrimination, but these guys have nothing else to the point that Caiaphas is forced. He's trying to get a blasphemy charge at this point. He's trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself because they have nothing else going for them. I want to point something out to you. It's only blasphemy to say you're the Son of God if it's not true. It's only blasphemy to say you're the Son of God if it's not true. And I would like to point out two other things to you here. If Jesus is wrong about him being the Son of God, so is God the Father and the Roman centurion. I want you to hold your place and look back in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. So when Caiaphas puts him on oath, Jesus is going to say, you've said so, I am the Son of God. If you go back to Matthew 3, verse 17, at the baptism of Christ, here's what it says. And behold... A voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Turn to Matthew 17. Transfiguration. Verse 5. He was still speaking, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. I would submit to you then, if Jesus is lying about being the Son of God, so is God the Father. In the passage that we'll see in a few weeks, or in, a, in, in next week, I guess, or this coming week here, in some time in the near future, the timetable minutes turn into hours. So, Matthew 27, verse 54, uh, you're, you're, you're going to have the... 
uh, Roman centurion who is there. And here's what the centurion says. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. And I just want to point that out to you because we believe with all our heart Jesus is the Son of God. If Jesus is not the Son of God, there's no need for us to hold Passion Week services. If Jesus is not the Son of God, there's no need for us to gather here, for we are all dead in our sin and we will all perish. And so here they have put Jesus under oath, and Jesus has said, you know, I am. It's only blasphemy if it's not true. It is true. God the Father affirms that. The centurion affirms that. Let me give you one more aspect that's wrong with these Jewish trials. If a council voted unanimously for conviction, the accused was set free because the necessary element of mercy was presumed to be lacking. What they would say, the theological word is, they were in cahoots together here, right? If everyone votes in the affirmative, it should have been a mistrial and Jesus should have been released. We see that Caiaphas stands up, 65. The high priest tore his robes and said... And I want to point out something right here with just that little phrase. All of the external religiosity does not always equal internal fervor. This is a big show. Caiaphas is doing a big show at this point. You can rend your garment, friend, but Jesus is interested in rent hearts. Rent hearts. He stands up and he says, what further witnesses do we need? You've now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Jesus should have been released at that point, but he wasn't. If you turn over in Matthew 27, you're going to see a different trial. They're going to bring Jesus to Pilate early in the morning. And what's going to happen? Beginning in verse 11 of Matthew 27, now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you've said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. What's going to happen in this passage, it's going to go on to say that now the feast the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner to whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who's called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. So when you think about justice, because we live in a world in which there is much injustice, you think about justice, you think, well, certainly with the religious leaders it's going to happen. We've already seen on at least seven counts that has not happened in the trial of Jesus. So you then get to the Roman system and think, well, at least maybe there'll be justice. And it at least begins that way because Pilate's going to say, what charge? What charge do you have? And of course, they're going to switch the charge. They're going to say that he's uttering these other aspects of wanting to be a, a king. And I'll get to some of that in just a moment. But they're going to change it. It's not blasphemy. They're trying to put before him. They're saying he doesn't want to pay taxes. He calls himself a king. He's an insurrectionist. They're even going to change the charge when they get him to Pilate, which is interesting, right? And so Pilate is going to do two things. He knows their motive. He knows that they have reasons for this, and yet the trial is going to continue. He's also going to receive a divine warning that's going to come in the form of his wife saying, don't have anything to do with this. But here's the problem. Pilate is going to choose politics over justice. Pilate is going to choose politics over justice. Pilate has had some problems. The Bible doesn't record it for us, but historians do. This is going to be the fourth 
time that Pilate is going to be in trouble with the Jews. He had put some emblems up that had insignias, and he put them in the temple, and they didn't like that because there are to be no idols in the temple. And so then he doesn't learn very well, and he's going to do it again with some shields, and these are going to actually revolt and appeal to Caesar. And Caesar's going to crack down and say, what are you doing, Pilate? So this is actually going to be the fourth time, and Pilate is actually going to be removed after this time, and he's going to be sentenced to Gaul, where he will ultimately commit suicide, according to tradition. You ever wonder what happened to Pilate? That's what happened to him. Let me just give you a couple things. This is a very long list I know that we've walked through and some of the legal things, and they don't do much to light my fire except for this. If you ever experience injustice, so has Jesus. But specifically, if you ever experience injustice because of the cause of Jesus, you are in his company. So maybe you go and you serve, and we see all the time nations where things happen to believers who are Christians that are completely unjust. When we suffer injustice for the cause of Christ, friends, we share in his sufferings. So if one day we find ourselves in a place where injustice is occurring to us because of our stand for Christ, we are in good company. The second thing that I would share with us is when we sit silently as injustice happens, we are just as guilty as those committing the act. You know, I'm not huge on, I don't often talk about abortion or just some of the other hot topic buttons that could get you elected to the Louisiana Baptist Convention presidency, but, but we can't sit silently, friends, when injustice happens in our world. We're just as guilty. We have to open our mouth for the cause of Christ and those who are suffering. Let me give you a third thing. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. Acts 2 says this, Men of Israel, this is Peter on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. I love it. The religious leaders and Pilate, it's all corrupt. And yet God is sovereign over all of it, friends. And so in our lives, we know there are some things that people do to us. You can't get worse than Joseph being sold by his brothers into slavery. And Joseph finally comes to the conviction, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And I don't know how God does that. And that blows my mind, doesn't it? Doesn't it blow our mind how some people can do evil toward us? And they will because we live in an evil and a fallen world. And yet somehow God can simultaneously be over that. And that's the great promise of Romans 8.28. Friends, for those who are in Christ, God works all things together for the good. So when others have done evil, friends, others did evil to Jesus before you. In Jesus alone will you find the strength to persevere. Jesus alone faced this injustice. He will, he will strengthen you. So he suffered injustice. Here's the second thing I want you to see. He suffered abuse both physically and verbally. Look what happens when they sentence him to die in verse 66 of chapter 26. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. And then watch what happens. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? You're going to see some of the same things happen in the other passages, but particularly you see him being spit on, struck, slapped, And then when Pilate delivers Jesus to be crucified, if you look now in chapter 27, 
Verse 24, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Jesus is going to be spit on. It's the greatest symbol of shame. He's going to be slapped. He's going to be punched. And then once Pilate makes his decision... They could do anything to you except for kill you. The crucifixion was supposed to kill you. So they can have a free-for-all, but he hasn't even been taken to the soldiers. That's the next passage, and we'll study that on Good Friday. But at this point, they strip Jesus, and they they take that whip, and it was most likely two men on either side, and they take that whip, and they rip it into his back. And whether it has bone or uh, sharp objects, it lashes on so that even the flesh would sometimes dangle. That didn't just shred completely off. It would just hang. And over and over, they're scourging Jesus. He's going to be abused physically, friends. He's also going to be abused, abused verbally as they mock him and they accuse him. As they're punching him and he's blindfolded, they're accusing him of being a false prophet and say, prophesy, who did it? Tell us, Jesus. Of course, he's going to be mocked on the cross. They're going to say, you said you could come down from the cross. You could build this temple. Look at you. He's going to be mocked. I find it very interesting that at the same moment they're accusing Jesus of being a false prophet, the very prophecy he said about Peter is coming true. I find it very interesting that at the same time he's being accused of a false prophet, the four times before that he told his disciples what was coming is happening. Here's the incredible thing. If Jesus' prophecies came true, friends, we can also trust his promises. We can trust his promises. For those of you who've ever experienced abuse, and we did, my family growing up, my dad was both verbally and physically abusive. For anyone who's ever been abused, so was Jesus. But specifically, any abuse that we might experience for the cause of Christ, we share in his sufferings. We share in his sufferings. All of these sufferings have a general application but they most certainly have a specific application for the cause of Christ. He suffered rejection. You're going to see Peter's denial. And we went through that last week, so I'm not going to read verses 69 through the end of the passage or 75, but he suffered rejection. But let me show you the largest rejection. We've just read a part of it in chapter 27, beginning in verse 21. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who's called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water, washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. So he suffered rejection. Peter is denying him. All the disciples have fled, obviously. But you cannot get more rejected than an entire crowd cheering for them to release a criminal and for you to die. Friends, you just can't get more rejected than that. And at some point, somewhere along the way, those of us who are fearful of, well, if I do this, the world might reject me, stand with Christ. He knows what it's like to be rejected. If we're rejected for the cause of Christ, then let us share in his sufferings. He suffered abandonment, the next one on your list. All the disciples have abandoned him, and as we'll see on Good Friday, so does the Father, because the Father turns his back on Jesus. 
for any of you who have ever been abandoned. Tara met a girl at our neighborhood pool who, when she was 16, her mom and dad abandoned her, left her. For any of you who have ever been abandoned, so is Jesus. But particularly when you're abandoned for the cause of Christ, sharing his sufferings. Jesus is abandoned. He suffered betrayal. Judas is going to be the one that kisses him. And, of course, verses 3 there all the way through 10 share what happens with Judas and his attempt to take the money back and his confession that he's betrayed innocent blood. Jesus was betrayed. And as we took time last week, any of us who've ever been betrayed, in Christ alone do we find the strength to forgive those who betray us. So as we meditate on this first portion Praise Jesus for his sufferings. Uh, His sufferings are various. Injustice, abuse, rejection, betrayal, abandonment. But his sufferings are vicarious, friends. They're in our place. They're in our place. And his sufferings will be fatal. They will cost him his life. We then should not be afraid to identify in his sufferings. Paul said this. I want to share in the sufferings of Christ. I wonder if that's your cry today. I wonder if that's the desire of our heart. I want to share in the sufferings of Christ. We find in Acts 5, these same disciples who fled, once Pentecost happens and they receive the Spirit, they don't flee anymore. They're flogged and they go away rejoicing that they were able to suffer for the cross of Christ. We find in Hebrews 11 that others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. And that just brought me to a question to say, if we are experiencing little suffering for the cause of Christ, I don't mean suffering in general, we all experience things as a part of this fallen world. But if we're experiencing little suffering for the cause of Christ, could it be because our identification with Christ is little? Could it be because we don't look very much like him? Friends, praise Jesus for his sufferings. As you read these, he suffered much. Number two, we should praise Jesus for his silence. In Matthew 27, 11 through 14, when he's brought before Pilate, Jesus isn't saying anything when the chief priests are accusing him. And even when Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, you have said so. He's being falsely accused. Luke 23, verse 2, here's what it says. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. So when the false prophets bring Jesus to Pilate, that's what they say. They say that he's a man misleading our nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. But if you'll remember, Jesus said, what did he say about taxes? And what did he say? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, render to Caesar. And so he even... And there's a coin that is found where? In a fish's mouth, right? And he says, take that and pay for mine and yours to Peter. Jesus clearly paid taxes. So should you, friends. Hopefully you did it by Friday. So we have these taxes. Jesus is he's not guilty of any things. Here's the big deal. If Jesus had been guilty of any of these charges, he would have already been arrested and executed, friends. He would have already been arrested and executed if he was guilty of what they're saying. Here's what I love about Jesus' silence. His silence is he's silent because his innocence speaks for itself. It demanded no defense on his part. By this time, when he's right here, 11 through 14, when he's in front of Pilate, by this time, Jesus had already been beaten by the Sanhedrin. His face was bruised and bleeding, and he was covered with spit. 
the accused silent prisoner appeared anything but regal or dangerous. In Luke 23, 9 and 10, they're going to send him over to Herod. And this is what you see there. So he questioned him at some length, Herod does, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they'd been at enmity with each other. They now are in cahoots as they're all against Jesus, and they're all abusing Jesus, and they're all mocking Jesus, and Jesus is being silent. And I would submit to you why you should praise Jesus for silence with this one point. Jesus is not pleading his innocence because he knows he has to take on our guilt. Friends, if Jesus had pled his innocence, he would have won. And we would all still be in our guilt, and we would perish. So as you see Jesus silent, praise Jesus for his submission to the plan of the Father and his walking through. I love that Jesus isn't trying to backpedal. If you were put on trial for a crime you did not commit, how many of you think you would speak up? Jesus is intentionally silent. And it's because it wasn't about his innocence. It was about our guilt. It's about our guilt. Number three, we should praise Jesus for his sovereignty. I would submit to you that Pilate and the crowds are both guilty, and they will both give an account for their actions, decisions, cries, and judgments on that day. For, for example, how do you think it's turned out for them already? I'd submit to you that they're both guilty. Pilate and the crowds, though, were both part of God's plan. Acts 4 says this, Truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Pilate and the crowds are both guilty, but Pilate and the crowds were both part of God's plan. But here's what you need to grasp. Neither Pilate nor the crowds took Jesus' life. Pilate doesn't take it. The crowd doesn't. The religious leaders. Jesus lays down his own life. John 10, verse 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. Jesus bravely chooses to suffer for us. Friends, this is where when we think about rights versus responsibilities, Jesus as the Son of God has the right not to be spit upon. Jesus as the Son of God has the right not to be punched. Jesus as the Son of God has the right not to be scourged. But Jesus knows he's the only one who can save us. And he puts his responsibility over his rights. And that's what we should learn from Paul, even as we do evangelism. Paul had the right to eat pork if he wanted to, but it wouldn't go very far with the Jewish people. And so we don't flaunt our rights in Christ. It is our responsibilities that should take preference for the sake of the gospel as they are. Here, friends, Jesus lays down his own life. Don't be mistaken. Praise Jesus for what he's doing here. The second thing that I would point out in his sovereignty, Jesus is the ultimate judge. So while these are judging him, the irony is that all who misjudge Jesus will themselves be rightly judged by him one day. Men continually misjudge Jesus, but he will never misjudge them. Pilate and Herod and the crowd all had their opportunity to judge Jesus. He will have his opportunity to judge them and us. Here's the last part. We should praise Jesus for his substitution. And this is probably my favorite part of these passages. In Matthew 27, verses 15 through 17, 
It says this, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. We don't know much about Barabbas. We just know that he's a notorious prisoner. If you turn to Luke 23, I'm not asking you to, but twice Luke is going to say in chapter 23 that Barabbas is an insurrectionist and a murderer. Barabbas is an insurrectionist and a murderer. And so this is who the crowd is cheering for. Give us the real murderer. Give us the insurrectionist. Give us the guy who's supposed to be punished. How many of you would say that you think Barabbas should have been punished? How many of you think the gospel writers seem to indicate Barabbas was clearly guilty? He's already in jail. And we don't have any reason to think that Barabbas' trials were like Jesus' trials. Barabbas probably had the benefit of a real trial, and he's sentenced, and he's in prison. And so here's the incredible picture of substitution, friends. Barabbas, the guilty, is released. Christ, the innocent, is crucified. This is the gospel, and I'm Barabbas. Even here in these trials, we see substitution. Barabbas goes free. Jesus is put to death. And this is us. We are condemned. I want us to close our time in Isaiah this morning. I'll ask the band to come. We're going to close with uh, our, our time here this morning with the song they're going to sing, and then Kevin will give us some announcements. But I want you to turn to Isaiah 53 as we think about praising Christ for his substitution. In this passage, what we've seen is that we should praise Jesus for his suffering and all the various ways that Jesus suffered. We should praise Jesus for his silence, that he didn't try to prove his own innocence. We should praise Jesus for his sovereignty. Pilate would have had no authority to put Jesus to death if he had not laid down his own life. But I think most glorious, this morning we should praise Jesus for his substitution because he's dying our death. In Isaiah 53, 700 years before Christ would come, here's what Isaiah wrote, beginning in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, We have turned everyone to his own way. Now watch this next phrase. Are you ready? And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's pick up in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul shall he see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Friends, this is a glorious passage. It is telling us that it is not his sin that he died for. It is our sin. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so that's why I'm thankful that even in the passage we get to see Barabbas go free. He's guilty. He deserves to be punished. And so do I. But even in that passage we see substitution, which is the very heart of the gospel. Jesus died our death. And friends, if that doesn't stir your heart, nothing else will. I would submit to you this week that we should praise Jesus for his suffering and his silence and his sovereignty and his substitution.
but we don't want to be those who rend our garments and not our hearts. If you meditate on what Christ has achieved for you each day, it will make a difference each day. You won't need revival. You will be in revival. We've just got to be a church that's intentional, that we think about Jesus, we pursue Jesus, we talk to Jesus, we walk with Jesus, and it will make a glorious difference in this city. You want fuel for worship? Here it is. Father, we thank you for your word. A lot of legal jargon could be done in these passages, but Father, I'm thankful that we see that Christ suffered injustice. Christ suffered abuse. Christ suffered betrayal. Christ suffered abandonment. Father, we have some in our midst who have suffered all of these things. We have some in our midst who are suffering them even now. And would you use this passage to remind us when we are abandoned, we are not alone. When we are betrayed, we are not alone. When we experience injustice, we're not alone. Christ is there. Particularly, Father, when the abandonment or the betrayal or the injustice or the abuse is because of a stand we take for you. Father, we are suffering very little for the cause of Christ. Could it be that it's because we identify very little with Jesus? Father, remind us that whatever you call us to, this was the plan. Jesus was not in disobedience. And sometimes your will goes right through these things. For you see things that we can't see, and you know things that we can't know, and you alone are our only hope for persevering through them. Thank you that Jesus was silent. Thank you that he wasn't trying to beg his way out of the court. Thank you that he wasn't calling on true witnesses, those that he brought to life. Those that he'd opened their eyes. Those that he'd fed. Those that saw him walk on water. Those who saw him turn water to wine. Those who saw him cast away demons. How many could have testified? And yet he was silent. Because it was our guilt, not his. Our guilt would be laid upon him. God, we praise Jesus. He is not weak here. He will be punched and he will be spit on and he will be stripped and scourged. But Jesus is not a weakling. He is sovereignly laying down his life. Oh, Father, Jesus is a glorious Savior. Pilate didn't take it. The crowds didn't coerce it. Jesus is giving his life. And he should receive all the glory for it this morning. God, thank you for having a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. Thank you that even in these pages we see substitution. The guilty goes free. The innocent is punished. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Father, thank you that it was your will to lay on him the iniquity of us all. That it was the will of you that he would ransom many. That he would identify with transgressors. For this is our only hope. We have nothing else. If this is not true, we have no righteousness, Father. 
All we have is Christ. All we have is Christ. Would you allow that to make a difference in our heart this week? Would you allow us to be a church that doesn't need revival? But we're a church that never gets past the cross. We're a, cross, we're a church that every day we go deeper into the cross. Produce that in us for your glory and for our good. It's in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us this morning?